Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with a very special guest this week. Bill Browder is here. Welcome, Bill. Great to be here. And I'm sure everybody listening knows you because you are someone to be known, but I want to just give a quick little introduction. You are a hedge fund founder, an author, a Putin expert who is coming out this week with a brand new book called Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath out this week. Bill, I know how book publishing works. So I know that this is not a book that came to fruition in the last two months or so, but it could not be more timely to talk about the things that you are very obviously an expert in. And I both know that when you wrote this book that you could have foreseen what is happening and also I'm sure could not have fully understood what was about to happen, right? Indeed. What's happening now has been happening for the last 20 years. Vladimir Putin has been invading countries, killing people, doing horrific things for as long as he's been in power. In fact, he came into power that way. So there's nothing surprising about this. And I've been trying to tell people about this. In fact, that was the reason that I wrote this book was I wanted the world to know who this man was and what he's capable of. And I I had been going around the world for many years trying to tell people that we needed to be tougher on Putin. We needed to react to what he was doing in a more robust way. And most people dismissed me as some, you know, that this, I must have issues, but you know, what's wrong with you, Bill Browder? You know, you, you must be some kind of weird extremist. And so, you know, I started writing this book three years ago, long before this war ever started. The main theme of the book is, is going after the, the dirty money that Putin and his cronies steal in the West and how it ended up, you know, finding itself in all sorts of people's hands, including Vladimir Putin himself. Mm. But who would have thought that, you know, on the month that the book comes out, the whole world would be trying to figure out where Vladimir Putin keeps his money? Well, I want to talk to you all about this and the fact that you brought up that you have been sort of chasing all of these things for decades is fascinating to me. And let me just back up a little bit and and give a little bit of history and context here. So for a decade in the mid-90s to the early 2000s, you ran the largest foreign investment firm in Russia. You wrote that your business model was simple, buy deeply undervalued shares in Russian companies, expose these companies' corruption, and then watch their share prices rise as the companies were forced to clean it up. It worked like a charm. However, as you can imagine, the oligarchs and corrupt officials who were doing the stealing weren't too happy with you. I think that that's a little bit of an understatement. So can you just explain how unhappy they were with you and what that meant for the last two decades of your life? Well, so when when I say stealing money, what I'm talking about is, you know, these people weren't like padding their expense account. You know, these were management and oligarchs connected to companies like Gazprom and Sparebank, where they were stealing billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars. I mean, just the, the vast amounts of money. And when I was exposing it, obviously, the people who were stealing the money weren't, were very unhappy. And what that meant was, first, they kicked me out of the country. They declared me a threat to national security. They then raided my offices, seized all of our documents. Mm-hmm. Then they used those documents in a complex scam where they stole $230 million of taxes that my company had paid to the Russian government from the Russian government. I hired a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky to investigate. He investigated it, discovered the crime, wrote criminal complaints about the crime and the people involved, testified against the officials involved, 
And he was subsequently arrested, tortured for 358 days and killed mm. on November 16, 2009, at the age of 37 in Russian police custody. And since then, I've been on a mission to get justice for him. I've put aside all of my commercial activities. I'm no longer a businessman. And I've focused all of my time, all of my resources, and all of my energies for the last 12 years going after the people who killed him to make sure they face justice. And this path has led to the passage of a piece of legislation named after my lawyer. It's called the Magnitsky Act, which freezes assets and bans visas of Russian and other human rights violators, including those who killed Sergei. The Magnitsky Act has now been replicated in 33 other countries. There's now 34 countries that have a Magnitsky Act. And this is the template which is now being used to go after Putin and his cronies and the oligarchs for the invasion of the war in Ukraine. It's so fascinating to talk to you at this moment because you have spent so many years before what is happening now, talking to governments all around the world about how to do exactly what we are watching play out right now. So I'm curious if you feel like you're banging your head against the wall and and wanting to scream from the rooftops, like, I told you that this is what you should be doing. And now, are we doing enough? Are we doing it the right way? Are people finally listening to what you have to say? So they're definitely listening to what I have to say. They're definitely doing, you know, in two weeks, they've done what I've spent the last 12 years asking for them to do. Mm. The trouble is that sanctions are kind of like medicine. It all depends on where you are in the progress of your ailment or your disease, how much the medicine works. If you had taken the medicine early, you probably could have avoided a full-blown case of the disease. And so if they had just used some of these sanctions after the previous fiascos and and horrifying scenarios that Vladimir Putin had executed, like invasion of Georgia, the the, um, shooting down of MH17, the passenger plane with 298 innocent people involved, the carpet bombing of civilians in Syria, the poisoning of Sergei Skripal in Salisbury, England, the interference in the U.S. presidential election of 2016. If If we had just reacted to any of these things more robustly with these types of sanctions, Putin would have had a different calculation about what he was going to do in Ukraine, but Mm. we didn't. I I think it's fascinating to hear you on this topic because we are, I mean, we haven't seen much of it, but we have seen some wealthy Russian business people living abroad lightly speak out, right? You've seen some sort of indication that people are saying what's happening now is not right. You are someone who spoke out against what happened in Russia and corruption in Russia, and you were targeted and probably still are or feel like you are being watched or followed or or, or in some way surveilled by Russian officials. So what is on the line for people who are wanting to speak out? I don't know if you're talking to anybody who is feeling like they want to say something about what is happening. Well, so there, there's really two different types of people. There are the people speaking out and the people who are afraid, you know, the oligarchs who are afraid to have their assets frozen, who are trying to speak out but not really speaking out. Mm. So let me, let me just give you an example of someone who's speaking out. So there is a, uh, a young Russian opposition politician named Vladimir Karamurza. Mm-hmm. He features very heavily in my book. He helped me pass the Magnitsky Act in a number of different countries by 
speaking on behalf of the Russian people at various parliaments and Congress and other places around the world. Very persuasive, very charismatic young man. And in retaliation for doing that, he was then poisoned twice in Moscow and nearly killed twice. He barely survived. He was disabled horribly after these poisonings, but he never stopped. And he continued to speak out. And just several days ago, he was on CNN calling Putin a murderer. And literally an hour after he said that, he was arrested in Moscow. And that's an example of someone who's brave enough to speak out. And now to contrast that with some of these oligarchs who are like whining about not being able to hire drivers and maids and saying war is a bad thing. Actually, they, no, they, they won't even say the word war. They'll say mm. conflict is a bad thing. They'll never say a bad word about Putin. They'll never call it a war. They'll never call it an invasion because they're all effectively in bed with Putin and afraid of what Putin will do to them and what, what will happen to their money. And so it's a very big difference between oligarchs and, and real heroes and speaking out against Putin. And most people are, are afraid to do it. And, and certainly all these guys with the money are afraid to do it. Well, sure. I understand, obviously, the, the the fear side of it. But I think one of the things you do so well is you explain how tied the oligarch's money is to Putin. Can you just give a, an explainer of, of how that tie actually works and, and how it is that really these oligarchs are just holding Putin's money? Yeah, it's so, it's so interesting. And most people don't really fully get this. But when Putin first came into power, he was very upset that the oligarchs were so powerful and so wealthy and he wasn't. And so he arrested the richest oligarch in Russia, a man named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who owned an oil company called Yukos. He arrested him, put him on trial, and allowed the television cameras to film the richest man and the most powerful man in Russia sitting in a cage. And that set off a sort of absolute panic among the rest of the oligarchs, who then went to Putin and said, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in the cage? And Putin said, real simple, 50%. Mm. And that was the moment, this was back in 2004, that Putin became the richest man in the world. And so when you see an oligarch who's on the Forbes list worth $20 billion, the reality is he's only worth 10 because the other 10 is being held for Vladimir Putin. Right. And, and when we're talking about going after Putin for the terrible things he's doing in Ukraine, and he's been put on all these sanctions lists, putting him on the sanctions list is great symbolism. But if we really want to make him feel the pain... We have to freeze his money. And the way we freeze his money is by freezing the oligarch's money who hold it for him. And that's what's starting to happen now. It's, it still hasn't happened to the extent that it needs to happen. There's only 32 oligarchs sanctioned, and there's 118 of them who are on the Forbes rich list. And if you look at the list of who's sanctioned, I, just, uh, I was just going through it today. You know, the U.S. has sanctioned some, but not the EU, and the U.K. has sanctioned some, but not the U.S., and so on and so forth. And so these people all need to be sanctioned everywhere, and a lot more people need to be sanctioned. Well, someone who's having these conversations, what is the holdup? Don't we know everything we need to know about this by now? Well, remarkably, no. And so, I mean, I know everything that needs to be known about this right now, but when I go in to talk to governments, you know, I've been thinking about it for 10 years. They've been thinking about it for eight weeks. Sure. And so it's not as if they have like full dossiers ready to go. Had they had that, I think this could be a lot more deliberate and effective campaign. Having said that, I'm still pretty happy that these people are finally getting what needs to happen to them. I think it's really powerful to watch, you know, Roman Abramovich or Oleg Deripaska or Suleiman Karimov. These are all big Russian oligarchs to watch them scrambling, moving their boats around the world desperately you know, behaving like cornered rats. It's, it's, it is 
as people who are, you know, sort of connected to the regime, it's really satisfying. Sure. And another thing that I, I've seen you explain so clearly, it's not the freezing of these assets. It's not so that Abramovich will call up Putin and say, hey, man, it's time to get the show on the road. My yacht uh, is frozen and I need to borrow a million dollars from my friends. Can we get the show on the road? That's not the purpose of this, right? It's not to get them to speak up and call their friend Putin. That's absolutely correct. That there, there is no chance that any oligarch is going to call Putin and say anything at all. Because the oligarchs only exist at Putin's pleasure. Mm -hmm. At any moment, he can just say, you're going to jail, I'm going to take your money, or I might kill you. And they understand that, and they're all so scared of him, it's not even funny. That fear is so absolute, and obviously it's it's a fear amongst the most powerful in, this, in his country and the least powerful in his country. To me, as someone who's not an expert, it feels like this entire thing is an exercise in proving that he is still powerful, that he could still put the richest man in his country in a cage. But I think what we've seen play out right now is that a move that was maybe born out of his goal of, of insisting that he's still powerful and brutal and vicious, it hasn't really worked. The, we've, we've watched the Ukrainians fight back. We've watched the Russian military look unprepared. And as someone who has spent so much time thinking about Putin and his, his motives and his power, I'm curious what you think this does to his psyche and what this will mean for what's to come in the next couple of weeks and months. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, his whole thing, the reason why he's at war in Ukraine is not because of NATO or EU enlargement or anything like that. He's at war in Ukraine because he needs to distract the Russian people from all the theft that he's done over 22 years and the mm -hmm. fact that they've got nothing and he's got hundreds of billions of dollars. And that's an unsustainable situation. And so he needed to, a new narrative of a foreign enemy and he has to show that he's all powerful and everyone has to rally around the leader. And, and you're absolutely right that he's looking totally emasculated. He looks terrible in, in how bad he has performed militarily in Ukraine. He looks weak. He, he looks incompetent. And he can't stand that. It's totally horrible for him. And all he can do is try to fake it in Russia. So he, he's cut off all sources of Western information. He's telling anybody who sees anything, any of these massacres from wherever they get the information from, that it's fake news, that these, this is all Ukrainians doing this stuff. And he's just hoping and, and praying that people in Russia don't see what we see, which is just a totally hollowed out state that doesn't work. Because the one way that this war will end, and the only way that this war will end, is if the Russian people decide that he's a loser and a weak man. Mm. They want a strong man, not a weak man. If he's seen as being a weak man who couldn't even win a war in Ukraine, the Russian people, one way or another, en masse, will get rid of him. Don't know how, don't know when, but that's the key to getting rid of Putin. Well, I think it's so fascinating to me, and, and I couldn't agree with you more, but maybe this is because I, I don't know enough about how Russian politics work on the ground because it sort of has never been a question in my lifetime. As far back as I can remember, there has been someone who has had absolute control. And so to think about an uprising there that would actually work feels sort of out of the realm of possibility if 
if the Russian people manage to get around the extreme propaganda and misinformation and disinformation that they're fed and they realize what is actually happening on the ground, is there a recourse? What? There's no election. There's no... He's a, such a terrifying figure and they are so brutal in the way that they treat their citizens. What is the recourse there? Well, the recourse is there, there's no sort of formal recourse, but I think there's a good case study in this whole story in, in the neighboring country of Kazakhstan that I'm mm. sure almost nobody has paid attention to. But in Kazakhstan, they had a dictator who'd been there longer than Putin. His name is Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. He had stolen, in proportional terms, probably a lot more than Putin has stolen in proportional terms uh, in his country. And out of nowhere, they raised the price of liquefied gas, which is what they use in their cars. Uh, don't ask me why, but that's what they use in their cars in Kazakhstan. They raised it by 50 or 100%. And all of a sudden, the entire country just blew up. And they just, you know, not ideologically, they're just furious. And they got rid of this dictator just like in, one, in like three days. Now, I don't know how it would work in Russia. And these things are impossible to predict. But that's the kind of thing that could happen to Putin. And that's the thing that he could never fight against. He can, he can arrest individuals, individual protest leaders, individual you know, anti-corruption activists, people he thinks are not going to be loyal to him. But he can't arrest the whole country if they all rise up. And that is the kind of thing that would happen if people are in bad shape economically, and then they realize that they've been fed a pack of lies by the, um, by the leader. And the pack of lies is probably going to have to come alongside some some other catalyst. We don't know what that is. I mean, who would have known that the Arab Spring would be caused by a fruit seller in, in some village in Tunisia setting himself on fire? And um, Vladimir Putin has put himself in a very vulnerable position by doing what he's done now. There's much higher likelihood of him losing power because of this war than there ever was before. It's so interesting because... To my mind, he is a very, or he has been written about and categorized as one of the more calculating leaders of our time who has managed to hold on to power for absolute power for a very long time. And this feels like such a catastrophic misstep at every stage. And every expert who I've talked to for this podcast and just asking around was surprised by how misguided this entire thing was. What do you make of that? Is there, is it just absolute power corrupts absolutely? Is it no one around him is actually able to speak up and tell him the truth? What's your sense? Well, my, my sense is that, that um, he was basing his actions and his decisions on the information that he had available to him. And the information he had available to him is on the Western side. We've never responded robustly to him before. We've always been appeasers, narrowly financially interested in our own interests and never willing to do anything serious. And so on the Western side, we have given him so many years of, of appeasement that he made the assumption that we would do that again. And then on the military side, he thought, well, you know, we have a population four or five times greater than Ukraine's, and um, we have a military 10 times greater than a military budget and, and equipment greater than Ukraine's, and, and, and they're just like us. We, we, there's no reason why we shouldn't win it. And, and it may be, I mean, from a sort of deranged psychopath, th those assumptions maybe weren't the wrong assumptions to make. It's just that they, they turn out to be wrong. I mean, it, mm. you know, it turned out that, that when you attack a country, the defenders always have, are much more motivated than the attackers, particularly in this case where there's no reason to be attacking. Sure. And that these people are defending their, their homeland. And, and, uh, and he, he probably didn't really anticipate that 
having 14,000 tanks was not a military advantage if the Ukrainians had uh, uh, Javelin missiles, which were supplied by Britain and the United States. And on the Western Front, he didn't anticipate that we would have so successfully countered his false narrative by leaking information for two months in advance every day that he was going to invade. So by the time he invaded, every appeaser, every apologist for Putin had to see it as what it was, which was a naked act of aggression. Mm. You know, the French and the Germans were busy shuttling back and forth, you know, pleading with him not to invade. And so by the time he he said, there's not going to be an invasion, there's not going to be an invasion. By the time he invaded, whatever false narrative which he created that the Ukrainians had somehow started this didn't work on anybody. And that was a big difference between how he's managed other conflicts leading up to this, where like, for example, when he invaded Georgia in 2008, he said the Georgians started it. We were just re- responding and, you know, other things like that. And he couldn't do any of that this time around. Does this just become a low simmer or is there a reasonable expectation that with a wounded ego and with so much on the line that this gets worse and the decisions become more unhinged and it escalates from here? There's no question it escalates from here. This has to escalate because Putin is not a guy who can do humiliation. He can't be Mm. a weak, humiliated leader. He has to be the strong man. He has to be the feared man. And that's not how he's looked at by us now. And so what is he going to do? Something truly awful. And I, you know, whatever awfulness we've seen, and we've seen some awfulness, is going to pale into comparison with what he's going to do going forward. And he doesn't he doesn't want to be liked. He doesn't want to be even accepted. He just wants to be feared. And he's kind of, at, the, at this moment in time, we don't fear him. We, we watch him and we just think this guy is a failed, corrupt, tin pot dictator. He has to change that narrative. He has to change that impression. He's going to do something really horrible. ask you as you bring up his fear. I've, I read your book this week and it's fantastic. It really reads like a thriller, which is good for readers and probably bad for your life. And I have to ask you to just detail the moment in the summer of 2018, we were all watching, I as a news person, and I think the world was watching a press conference with President Trump and Vladimir Putin, and your name came up and you detail this in your book in such an incredible way. Everyone should read the book for for this moment alone. But I'm going to ask you to give a little bit of a spoiler away because I think this story speaks so much to the political moment we are in now and and have all lived through over the last few years. So on, on, it was in July of 2018, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin were going to meet in Helsinki at a summit, the first formal summit of the two countries. And they were having a meeting which was secret. There was nobody attending the meeting other than the two heads of state and one of Putin's translators. And, and I should point out that this, was, this meeting was taking place a few days after Robert Mueller had just indicted 12 Russian military intelligence officers for hacking the U.S. election. So they, they have their secret meeting, and, and then they come out of their meeting place, and they, they show up in a big hall where there's a press conference. And a journalist from Reuters raises his hand and asks Putin, you know, Mr. President, um, are you going to hand over the 12 Russian GRU officers? And Putin kind of smiles. He's been waiting for this question to be asked. And he says, you know, we could do that, and we may very well. 
but things need to be reciprocal. If we hand them over, uh, then we want the United States to hand over Bill Browder, me. Mm. And so so then another journalist uh, moves on to Trump and says, well, what do you think about that? And he said, I think that's an incredible offer. And I, I, I'm, I normally I live in London. I'm a British citizen. I've been there for 30 years, but I was in Aspen at the time. And I pictured four blacked out government SUVs coming out, coming to where I was staying, grabbing me and putting me on some black operation CIA flight to Moscow. Sure. It was horrifying and unimaginable that, that I would feel at risk in the United States of America being handed over to the Russians to be killed. Well, so to hear the president of the United States hear that and not immediately say, that's insane. How how could you say that about one of our citizens? And to say, that sounds like an incredible offer, even for for what we know about what happened and, and who our president was over the last four years, it is gobsmacking. It was truly unbelievable and terrifying for me. And after they after they asked for me to be handed over, then they, the next day they added a bunch of other people to the list, including former Ambassador Mike McFall, the ambassador to Russia, mm. a man named Kyle Parker, who wrote the Magnitsky Act, which was the legislation the, freezing these assets, and um, a bunch of other people all involved with me in my justice campaign. And um, it took Trump four days before he walked it back. And it was only when there was a vote coming up in the Senate, which was going to pass unanimously, 98 to 0, that Trump very meekly walked it back. And it was terrifying in, in, in all different ways. And, and he did walk it back. But I've thought to myself ever since then that if Trump had been reelected, this was going on during the Mueller investigation where, where he was investigating collusion with Russia. And so I thought to myself, if Trump had been reelected with no Mueller investigation going on, he would hand me over to Russia. And so I was I, I probably the most relieved person on the planet that he wasn't elected, so I knew that I wouldn't be arrested if I came back to the United States. What an incredibly twisted and terrifying thing that was. If this didn't entice everyone to read the book, I don't know what will. The, the book is really, it's so fantastic, and it is incredibly gripping and important to read always, but particularly in this moment. Bill, I'm so grateful for you stopping by in the midst of a very busy week. I am hoping that we can have you back again to talk about how all of this is unfolding and to use your your brain and your expertise. But I just really appreciate your time here and stopping by and explaining all of this to us. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Bill Browder, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for the production work, and of course, our great producer, Brett Fuchs. Thank you to our sponsors. Please be sure to support them. Any way you support this podcast, we will see you right here next week.